Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. Welcome. Other than Katie Foster, does anybody have a rooting interest in tonight's football game? Is everyone else with me in the anti-Tom Brady club? Handful. I saw Jack Rogers walking in today with his Believe in Brady sweatshirt, and I tried to expel the demons from him, but he's... He's resilient. He's a resilient one. So we have been in the Gospel of John for 13 weeks now, and I've kind of been moving in a certain direction where it seems as though I am um, pushing against the grain, maybe not of traditional readings of the book of John, but maybe typical readings of the book of John. Specifically, if people have spent any amount of time in the church, I'm convinced that at times the application that you have received might be a bit wrong-headed. This evening, I'm going to start with that, but then I'm going to move us into a different approach as we think about this text that you may or may not have heard from the book of John. This is in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is actually a really lengthy account, but we're going to break it up in the first 15 verses just to focus on the miracle uh, that Jesus performs here and not go into his teaching Um, about the relationship between he and his father. We'll look at that next week. This is John chapter five, beginning in verse one. It says, sometime later, and as a good reader, it might be uh, important for you to think about all the things that have transpired. And if you are just joining us for the first time, get out your Bible or look on your app and maybe just go back and look at some of the chapter headings leading up to this moment. Jesus has been... um, performing miracles, yes. He's also been doing some teaching. He's also been undoing some of the traditional understandings of what the Jewish um, faith was, was thinking should or might happen. So sometime later, Jesus shows up. He went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. 
But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. The word of God for the people of God. Oh man, this is such a good story. There's so much going on in this story. So many layers of theological beautifulness that we can uncover, but not tonight, dear friends. We don't have time for that. I do have, in honor of Super Bowl 53, I must say I have 53 slides tonight in honor of Super Bowl 53. Katie's not feeling too good about that number, folks. She's looking at me like, what are you talking about? Maybe it should be 12 in honor of Tom Brady. But no, tonight it is 53. I do think they will go quick. And if they don't, you just feel free to stand up and walk out. It's fine. Okay. Um, I will begin with a brief historical reconstruction of this passage, particularly thinking about the structure in which this uh, particular person was sitting. Okay, so if you can reconstruct this pool of Bethesda with the five um, colonnades, the NIV has translated it. Many people have attempted to, through archaeological means, reconstruct what this may have looked like. And even in my own travels to Israel, going to this place, you can see some of the remnants, some of the, the columns that are still remaining where this structure may have been, but most scholars would say that collectively these two pools that are separated by a colonnade in, in between them, thus giving it five different porches where people can sit, collectively those pools are about the size of a football field and maybe 20 feet deep. So when you go in, you are committing yourself to get into the waters of, of this pool, but you can see here it's separated into the north and the south. This is near the Temple Mount um, in, in Jerusalem, and for people, they would have been stationed in this structure around the peripheral here so that they could be waiting for the waters to stir. There's a lot of uh, legends and traditions that are underlying what was going on with that sort of thing, but most folks would say that at, at the very least, that this structure and the pools there was some sort of a water intake um, pond, if you will. So the waters that are coming in might be causing some sort of a stir in the waters that are being placed uh, in this pool. It is notable to me that when you think about um, John 5, 4, if anyone ever asks you what your life verse is, I think it'd be really funny for you to tell them John 5, 4. Why is that? Because it doesn't exist. If you look at your Bible, it jumps straight from John 5.3 to John 5.5, 5, and that's just sort of the sick person that I am to say my life verse is a verse that doesn't really exist. And you're asking me, well, why did they skip from verse 3 to verse 5? Is because in the earliest attested manuscripts, this verse was not there. But later on, people began to introduce the tradition to say that why these disabled people were lying around this potentially magical pool. So some of the, the later texts that we have 
add on to at the end of verse three where it says the blind and the lame and the paralyzed had been uh, sitting in this place waiting for the stirring of the water. And here's the explanation that they give. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons. That might be a bit of a mis. Uh, misleading translation. At certain times, at certain moments, an angel of the Lord goes down into the pool and stirs up the water. And here's what happens. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well from whatever disease they had. This is the backstory to what's happening here with this um, person with a disability for 38 years awaiting for the magical stirring of the water and attempting to get in. He's not the first one into the waters. Now do with that what you will. I think it's important for us to note that this is not part of the scripture, but this is part of a later tradition attempting to explain what is going on. And even in verse seven, we see some sort of um, evidence as to why the man is believing that he has not been healed because he has not been able to get into the waters. Now, once we understand this structure and once we understand this pool and once we understand that there's many people who would have been stationed there and once we understand that those people as well would not have been seen as the uh, elite of society. This would not have been a place that people wanted to go. This was a place where folks were pushed off into the margins that were set outside of society, outside of community, outside of um, the relationships that they may or may not have had with their fellow Jewish men and women, a typical reading of this passage that you might hear at a youth group, that you might hear at a church, would focus on a couple of different details in the story. The first one, perhaps, is the fact that this individual had been sitting there for 38 years. Now, it's important for us to note that this doesn't necessarily mean that this person had just stayed there for 38 years consistently. It might be a going back and forth. And obviously, this person would be dependent upon his friends to move him back and forth. This is a regular occurrence where you might find this individual there for 38 years. I'm 37. Almost the entirety of my life would be stationed in this place waiting for something to happen. If that's not something that is picked up on, it might be this line from Jesus where he shows up to the man that has been laying there for 38 years and says, do you want to be well? And commentators have had a field day on why Jesus is asking this person that. Perhaps he's just lazy. Perhaps he just doesn't really want to be healed, especially when he goes on to give his excuse as to why he hasn't been healed yet. Some people wonder if Jesus is asking a real question or if Jesus is asking a rhetorical question or if Jesus is asking a question of someone who he knows will give him a certain response or if Jesus is really wanting an answer from this person about whether or not they want to be made well or if they want to continue in this life of laying and just being, or if they want to do, as some commentators would maybe callously say, want to do the hard work of picking up their mat and going and then becoming a productive part of society again. People have focused on these things, the length of time in which the individual is staying there and what Jesus means by whether uh, or not this person wants to be made well and the response of the man who says, I have no one to help me. And at least in sermons that I have heard over the course of my life, the turn upon which this teaching is centered is on us. What is the thing that you have been dealing with for 38 years? What are the excuses that you give to Jesus 
when he asks if you want to be made well? Do you actually want to have your life transformed by following Jesus, or are you content just laying poolside for the entirety of your existence? These sorts of sermons, and they might not be ringing bells for you, these are the things that I've heard in my past where this text becomes about us. It's not about what Jesus is doing, and it's certainly not about what Jesus is doing with regard to the historical context of this passage. So might I suggest this evening that we don't just immediately go to us and think about our own infirmities and don't think about the the things that we would say to Jesus as far as do we want to be made well. I don't want to go there yet because we have to add a bunch of layers on top before we can come back to that question because Jesus is not simply just asking if this man wants to be made well. There's a lot more going on in this passage, and I want to kind of get us there. I would like to suggest a different approach as we look at this passage, and there's two different things that we have to see in this text. The first deals with the water. So as we think about the healing water of this pool that this man is laying at, it's important for us to understand the traditions of healing properties of water, both in the ancient Near Eastern context and in the first century Jewish context. And ancient people had different ideas about what water might be able to do. Think back, all you Old Testament scholars in the room. Think back to the commander of the king of Aram's army, Naaman, who had leprosy. And in 2 Kings chapter 15, I believe, Naaman was asked to go and to bathe in the Jordan River, something that he did not want to do. Why would I, a man of esteem, why would I, a man of of high intellect and great grace, go wash myself in that dirty, muddy, gross Jordan River? People had these ideas about perhaps water being able to heal. In the Roman culture, it wasn't just about bathing, but if you could drink from certain streams, perhaps there would be healing properties that go into it. There's healing shrines in in Greek uh, religions that people were dependent upon. It might be a spring for purification that was an essential component of these ancient Greek healing sanctuaries, places next to the temples where folks would go because they thought that there was something inherent within the water that might help them to be brought back. We also see Jewish hot springs and healing baths where people would go out into the wilderness perhaps and just be And automatically, when I think about hot springs and healing baths, I think about Jory floating in the salt baths in Ocean City, just relaxing with the the melodies of meditative music as he just sits and floats. I haven't been, so I have no idea what's going on, but don't don't mess with my mind, Jory. I I just think of that as these Jewish people are out there in the hot springs wanting to be healed of whatever it is that is ailing them at that time. There's also traditions surrounding the pool of Bethesda, the actual site that we're thinking about this evening. After this story and after Jerusalem is destroyed and taken over by Rome, we have traditions specifically surrounding uh, the emperor Hadrian. And under his rulership, the pool was dedicated to Asclepius. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right, but it sounded scholarly, didn't it? Asclepius, the god of healing, this, this temple, this place that where our story takes place has been named um, after the god of healing because people thought there were healing properties that were taking place in this specific location. Also, in 1866, there was an archaeological find. There was a broken marble foot that was found in the debris in the vaults of the church at St. Anne, which is the site that we're thinking about, the Pool of Bethesda. There have been cathedrals built on top of it. 
And on top of this marble foot was the inscription in Greek that says, Pompeia Lucilia dedicated this votive gift. It's a marble foot, and some people have thought that she might have had an ailment in her foot, and when that healing took place, she came back to thank the gods by having this marble statue of a foot dedicated. When you think about all of this tradition that's lying in the background, one scholar says that Jesus in this healing is in competition with ancient healing sanctuaries. It's not just as though he's going up to someone who has been uh, having this ailment for 38 years and saying, do you want to be made well? There's something underneath of that. It's also interesting that there's no faith in this story. There's no asking from this person in this story. Jesus goes and seeks out this individual and says, do you want to be made well? But underneath all of that is this long line of tradition where waters might heal one. And Jesus is attempting to address that. It is, in a sense, another water story in John. Remember, John is called the spiritual gospel. And he has all of these themes that demonstrate theological richness. And water is massive for John. It's not going to end here. But we've already seen a few of these stories, whether it's Jesus' baptism with John and Jesus becoming uh, the new Moses, if you will, the new leader of the people, if you will, the new Messiah, if you will. We've also seen that when Jesus in his first uh, miracle at the wedding of Cana, where he turns water into wine, remember he sees the stone jars over to the side, the stone jars that are used for ritual purification, the stone jars that are meant for people to wash their hands to stay kosher with Jewish law. It's these stone jars off to the side that were meant to purify people. And Jesus says, fill them up. And he transforms the water into wine. Jesus is doing something new in that moment. It's not about ritual purification anymore because Jesus is here. The implements that you have to bring about cleanliness according to Jewish law, they are over and abolished because of what Jesus is doing. When Jesus shows up to the woman at the, at the well in Samaria, he talks about new, living, fresh water that is moving and flowing. It's not water from a cistern. And it is better than the water that you have from this well of your ancestors. Jesus is doing something new. And now in this healing pool that is probably filled with people who are waiting for the waters to stir. They're waiting for the water to rush in so that bubbles will be made, so that their traditional understanding of what has happened, that divine understanding that they will be healed if they just roll themselves into the pool. Jesus is saying, it's not about Bethesda. It's not about the pool. It's not about the bubbles. It's not about these angels that you have conjured up. It's about my very word that says, be healed, pick up your mat and walk. Jesus is not just healing this individual. Jesus is undoing anything that rivals his power, his goodness his miraculous capabilities by saying it's no longer about the stone jars. It's no longer about the well of your ancestors. It's no longer about the pool where you think you can be healed. I am doing something new. 
You see, when we rush to, to put in our own 38-year-long problems, when we rush to allegorize the story into what are the things of which Jesus says to us, do you want to be made well? We miss the richness of what Jesus is doing by systematically undermining the system of the time and saying, I am blowing it up. I am doing something new and I am bringing you guys along for the ride. So in this first uh, bit of teaching, we have to understand the waters and what Jesus was really battling in this moment. It wasn't just the faith or lack of faith of this individual. It was something deeper. It was the people's mistrust in a mythical ideal of healing that's rooted in water. And Jesus says, that is not what you should be trusting in. You should be trusting in me. But really, this part of the story, scholars would say, it's just a stage prop for what Jesus is really about. The text says, the day on which this took place, this miracle took place, it was a Sabbath. That is an important fact. And actually, the way that John tells this story, it's completely masterful. Because notice, it doesn't show up until verse 9 of the story. He goes on to tell about this person who's been laying at this pool for 38 years, who desperately wants to be healed, or at least maybe is putting himself in the position of wanting to be healed, trusting in these mythical, magical waters. And Jesus says, it's not about the waters. I'm doing something completely and utterly new. And the reason why he's telling this story for John is so that when it turns and it says that it's on the Sabbath, the ancient audience would perk up and say, something is going on here. For people that don't know, the Sabbath has an illustrious history in Old Testament texts. I'm going to read you a butt-ton of them, okay? That's a technical term. This is Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments. It says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days, catch this because we'll come back to it, the, the logic, the reason in Exodus's version of the Ten Commandments is this. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the seas and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Exodus 20, this is not just a peripheral text. This is from the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words in the Old Testament. These are the main laws of the people. And one of the most important ones here is, remember the Sabbath, don't work. Neither you nor your kids, nor the people that live with you, not even your animals, don't do any work on this day because it's holy. Later in Exodus chapter 31, it says, observe the Sabbath because it's holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. For six days is to be uh, for six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. This is Old Testament text, and it is brutal. I've been listening to these podcasts lately with a couple of psychologists talking about the Old Testament, and they're both dancing around the issue that the Old Testament is brutal and bloody, and the fact that if God is um, consigning these works into print, then what sort of a God does that make him? If you disobey on, uh, by not keeping the Sabbath, the text says, you die. 
I'd like to posit just something for you to be thinking about as you're wrestling with some of these concepts. And this will not get us out of the difficulty that is brought about by reading a passage such as this. And I'll also be honest, it's gonna get worse before it gets better because I've got some other stuff for us this evening. Remember that it is inappropriate for us to take our 21st century rational enlightenment-fueled ideals that are formulated within our American democratic society and put them back onto an ancient text. It does not always get us out of the difficulties, but if we start here from this viewpoint and then throw it back to this ancient text and say, that's not fair, that's not right, a lot of times we're forgetting the historical context in which these texts arose. I just want to submit that to you. It does not always get us out of the difficulties that the text brings about. This passage continues. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Exodus 35, Moses assembled the whole Israelite community and said to them, these are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days, work is to be done, but the seventh day shall be your holy day, a day of Sabbath rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it is to be put to death. Leviticus 23, there are six days when you may work, but the seventh is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. Deuteronomy 5, the other version of the Ten Commandments. It says, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. You six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Here's the rationale. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. In the Ten Commandments in Exodus, just note, it's based on creation principles. God works for six days and then he rests. In Deuteronomy, this command is based on the Exodus. You were once in slavery and in servitude to these people, but now you're not. There's a difference in the way these laws are worded, but do we get it? Text after text in the Pentateuch, don't work on the Sabbath, this is a massively important law. It's a big deal, so big, in fact, that in the book of Numbers, chapter 15, there's a really bizarre and troubling story for the people who have come into this place with a lot of baggage towards the church, towards the Bible, towards Jesus. This will not help you. <laughs> This is one of those texts where I'm sitting there thinking like, I probably shouldn't put this into the slideshow. But what does that say about me if I'm scared to talk about it? So here's what happens in this passage. While the Israelites were in the wilderness, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Can you believe it? He's gathering wood on the Sabbath. You guys are really quiet and like the voice is just <laughs> echoing, okay? Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly and they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done to him. And then the Lord says to Moses, the man must die. The whole assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death as the Lord commanded Moses. 
If you've got the baggage, if you've come into this space with a bit of mistrust with regard to a good God that we sing about, you are good, good, except for that dude in Numbers 15 when he died. He was just gathering sticks. I don't, like, if you've got the baggage, when you come in here because of how good God is and you think about a text like this, it's difficult for you. And I'm not going to help you today because we don't have time for that. But I want you to at least understand this one simple principle. The Sabbath is a big freaking deal for this ancient people trying to wrestle with what it means. The only phrase I want to use is to satisfy a holy God. But man, that starts making my own baggage get all right here on the table. You know what I mean? How to live in a way where God is pleased with you underneath of this law, what it means for you to keep the Sabbath because it is so important. If you do have the baggage, stick with me because what is undone in the New Testament through Jesus is absolutely beautiful. Okay? But here, it's not just in the Old Testament. In fact, Craig Keener says the Sabbath becomes even more important in later Jewish tradition. There's a book in the intertestamental period called the Book of Jubilees, and it claims that angels kept the Sabbath and that this day was holier than any other holy day. Some later rabbis even said in notoriously hyperbolic language, Keener says, that the Sabbath outweighed all other commandments of the Torah. This is massive. So when you come to a, a, a passage where Jesus is healing on the Sabbath, tuck this away in the back of your mind. But all of this, all of the ferocity with which this ancient people is attempting to keep the Sabbath, it begs the question, doesn't it? Don't work on the Sabbath. And the question becomes so clear, what is work? What is it that we're not supposed to do? Because I remember that story and the, the guy was just gathering sticks. So we at least know, don't for the love of God pick up sticks on the Sabbath because you will be smoked, you will be smitten, you will be done. Do not do that. There's other texts in the Old Testament that say don't start a fire, don't work the land, don't put any animal to work, don't buy or sell anything, don't bear a burden, don't carry anything from point A to point B. Maybe there might even be legislation about how far you might be able to carry something from point A to point B, or if you're just walking, how far you can walk from point A to point B. In fact, in the Talmud, there became 39 articles of things that you could not do on the Sabbath. They legislated this. Very, very clearly, because this was important. We don't want any of you to die, so we're going to put in print what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath day. And this became a mode of interpretation that is called fencing the Torah. So you have these, these commands, don't mess with the Sabbath, keep it holy. And then you have all these smart Jewish rabbis that say, well, we better figure out a system here. We better figure out what's going on. And if we can figure out what that is, then what we need to do is build a fence around that so that we don't come anywhere near it. They want to be so far away from the line that they'll put a fence around and around and around and around so that they can stay away from the thing that might cause God to smite, smote, smitten them. 
which leads us to this idea of carrying a mat on the Sabbath. The miracle's beautiful, right? Guy's been laying there for 38 years and Jesus says, do you wanna be well? And he's like, well, I mean, I've been sitting here for a long time, got nobody to help me in the water. Guy, pick up your mat, you missed the point. Pick up your mat and go. So he picks up the mat and he goes. And the way that John tells this story is beautiful because it says, then Jesus said to him, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And for an ancient reader, they would have said, what? What's gonna happen now? Is the guy who couldn't walk for 38 years gonna get stoned because he can't pick up his mat and walk? It's illegal, you can't do that. He's breaking the Torah. There's fences all around it, man. Don't do it, this is a trap. And the Pharisees pick up on this. The Jewish leaders say to the man, it's the Sabbath, the law forbids you from carrying your mat and talk about missing the point. 38 years of laying there, not able to walk, and now he can walk, and he's picking up his mat. Busted, put your mat down. You're fired, get out of here. Everybody's missing the point in this story. The way John tells it is so beautiful because he just throws this detail in. It's embedded within the story, but for an ancient reader, they would have heard it. We don't hear it because we don't give two rips about the Sabbath. We think it's completely insane for someone who's picking up sticks to die. And we might have a point there. (laughs) But for this people, that was, their law keeping was important to them. So for keeping the Sabbath, for some people's understanding, the bit about don't carry your mat was part of the Torah that's fenced in. Don't do that so that we don't demolish the Sabbath so that we don't make it unholy by picking up your mat and walking. How dare you? But for Jesus, he says, just carry it. Who cares? It's not that the Sabbath is unimportant for Jesus, but he says, I'm doing something new. Your legislation is not going to bind you anymore. If you were sick and I'm healing you, then you can pick up your mat and get out of here. Who cares what the Pharisees say? For Jesus, this had nothing to do with whether or not the guy was keeping the Sabbath. He was carrying his mat out of obedience to Jesus who has just healed him. After 38 years, you can't imagine this, but just for fun, try to imagine it. You haven't walked in 38 years, and then you do. You can't can't wrap your brain around that. But this guy is not going to be shut down because he's following a simple command of picking up his mat and walking, just for your two cents as well. Um, In the story where the guy is lowered through the ceiling, And in this story, the same word for mat is used in both of those um, episodes. And it's like, it's a beggar's mat. It's a poor person's mat. It's not like the ritzy, inflatable (laughs) mattress in a box sort of situation. This is someone who needs help. And the religious elite of the day are attempting to keep him down. But Jesus is saying... It's all new. The laws that used to cause people to die, I'm undoing them. The things that people used to um, live their life out of fear, 
you don't have to fear anymore. If you get healed and you need to pick up your mat and go home and show everybody that you're not confined to this mythical, magical place with bubbly angel water anymore, you can go and do that because Jesus is making all things new. Jesus is upsetting the balance. Jesus is challenging the tradition. Jesus is taking all of this teaching and he is blowing it up systematically in public and he is ticking off all of the right people. Most scholars would say, when you're thinking about historical Jesus stuff, it's almost certain that he did stuff on the Sabbath because this is like something that would lead to one dying. It's also almost certain that he goes into the temple at some point and overthrows the, the tables, the, um, the money changers' tables, because certainly that is something that will get you killed. So for these scholars to say, these are the things that Jesus is doing to upset the balance of power. But for us, theologically, these are the things that Jesus is doing to invite people in to participate in the newness that he is initiating. When we reduce it, and I'm, I'm going to go back here one time. When we reduce it and say, what are the things you've been struggling with for 38 years? What are the things that when Jesus says, do you want to be well of this and you struggle? We fundamentally miss the depth and beauty of this story in what Jesus is actually doing. The water, forget it. These old pagan myths, forget it. I've got something that's better. Notice, the guy didn't come anywhere near the water. All Jesus did was say, get up. Same word there, that's a, it's a resurrection word. Agera, get up, rise, pick up your mat and walk. And also, the bit about the Sabbath. It becomes this big point of consternation for the religious elite, but Jesus says, I'm on to something that's different here. And if you Pharisees can't get on board with that, I'm going to make my crew people that can. The invalids, the blind, the hurt, the maimed, the people that understand what healing and transformation is all about. I'm doing something new. And your traditions and your routines, I'm going to upset them. Really, if there's a question that we should be asking from this text, it's not what are the 38-year-old sins that might be keeping you down, but what are the traditions that you're holding that are keeping you from what God is doing here and now? What are the things that you're holding on to that King Jesus is saying, I'm upsetting those things because what I'm about is new and it's different, and it's going to demand something of you where when I ask you to pick up your mat and carry it on the Sabbath, and you as a good religious person have baggage with whether or not that should go, maybe those are the questions that we should be asking. Where is Jesus taking us and moving us? The typical reading, I would argue, misses the point. And if the typical reading is only something that, that I've heard or that I've been aware of or that I have my baggage with, then let's at least just move on from that and understand that this story has a theological depth where it's not just about you. It's not even just about healing. It's about Jesus systematically undoing 
the normal for the sake of bringing the kingdom of God to earth. This reading where it centers around us, it misses it. So we're going to circle back and I'm going to close with this. Slide 53, Katie, we made it. When Jesus says, do you want to get well? How I'm going to inappropriately massage that today is in this way. When Jesus says to you, do you want to get well? Perhaps how we might be able to think about that would be, do you want to be about the new work that I'm about? Do you want to be with me as we move towards restoration and reconciliation? Do you, do you want to partner with me even though it'll cost you something and even though it might be difficult because you've heard your whole life that you can't pick up your mat and walk, but now I'm asking you to, to do something that might hurt you a bit. Do you want to get well? Do you want to be saved by being with me as we attempt to bring reconciliation and newness to the world around us? Now, I understand as much as I'm standing here that for some of you, you do have an allegorical or a metaphorical battle that you have been waging, perhaps for a metaphorical or allegorical 38 years. And what I want to offer you this evening is even that is something that King Jesus is attempting to address in this story, because as his people rally around him and as his people become folks who care about restoration and reconciliation and redemption, as his people become those who are focused on the same sort of, of goal that he has in mind, we will become advocates for you as you are in the midst of that battle. My hope this evening is that maybe before we get to me or to you, we think about what we see here in Jesus and we begin to wonder if he might be calling us and urging us and moving us to align with him as he brings heaven to earth. I do have news for you and it's not gonna be cool. Anytime you're involved in that sort of activity, it is going to be hard it is going to be difficult. Not everyone wants other people to experience heaven on earth. So when you become the advocate for that, it might be difficult for you. But perhaps it's in those moments when we can hear the soft whisper of our king who says, pick up your mat and go. You'll be okay. I am with you. And we can begin to do the hard work of bringing about reconciliation in a way that we haven't received or in a way that other people need to receive. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash RestoreSBY or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.